Kirk Guyatt is the ACLU of Michigan journalist who went door to door taking water samples and talking with Flint residents about what was happening in their homes before the world believed them. On this episode of Created Equal, my conversation with self-described advocacy journalist, Kurt Guyette. It was founded on the principle, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. That all men are created equal. My first guest tonight is someone whose work really, really stood out among all of the journalism that was done about the Flint water crisis. Kurt was one of the first people paying attention to what was going on in Flint before people really knew uh, what was happening with the water crisis. And once it became an issue, he really took an aggressive and non-traditional approach to the way he reported the story. And it was his work that I think shined uh, a lot of that initial spotlight on not just what was happening, but why it was happening, who was responsible, and what the consequences uh, were going to be. So let's welcome Kurt, who is the editor-at-large for the ACLU of Michigan and producer of the mini-documentary, Here's to Flint. So I do want to get to I do want to get to with Kurt this idea of being a journalist who works for an organization like uh, the ACLU as opposed to uh, a newspaper or a magazine or a television station. Uh, I think among other things, his work stands out because it was sort of in this groundbreaking uh, space uh, where where journalism is changing so fast and where we're seeing lots of different players sort of enter the journalism space uh, with their own take on what the rules look like and what you're capable of doing and what the purpose of what you're doing is. But but I, I want to start with the work that Kurt started with in September of 2015 when you were walking around neighborhoods in Flint, knocking on doors and not asking people for interviews. Tell us what you were doing. <laughs> Well, what happened was in July, early July, we published the internal US EPA memo uh, that Miguel del Toro wrote, uh, sounding the alarm about uh, the potential, not just potential, the likelihood, uh, the almost certainty that there were high levels of lead leaching into Flint's drinking water as a result of the switch to the river and the failure to use legally mandated corrosion control chemicals. And we published that memo. Uh, I wrote a story about it, uh, tried to get a comment from the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality. Uh, they wouldn't respond. Uh, subsequent emails showed. They said, oh, we get getting these calls from this journalist, and they put the word journalist in quotes from the uh, American Civil Liberties Union of Michigan. And then after we did publish that, then Michigan Radio very quickly uh, picked up the ball and started running with it as well. They talked to the MDEQ who did respond, and uh, their spokesman, uh, Werfel, uh, said, we've been testing water all over the city of Flint. We can tell you when it comes to, to lead, people should just relax. 
And so we had a, a, I had a he said, she said story on my hands, which is, who are you going to believe? And they were uh, characterizing Del Toro as this, this rogue employee who improperly released this memo to one of the uh, Flint residents, Leanne Walters, because they had tested her house and they found lead levels two and a half times what it classifies as hazardous waste coming out of uh, their tap. And so they were discrediting, actively trying to discredit him and in order to bolster uh, their claim that nothing was wrong. And so then the question came is, well, how, how do you get to what's really going on conclusively? And um, I propose that we do our own tests, uh, by we meaning uh, the, the citizens who are involved and Mark Edwards, uh, who's the... Uh, uh, scientist at Virginia Tech University, one of the foremost uh, experts on lead and water in the in the world. And uh, so I called Mark and said, Mark, what it would take to uh, do these tests? And we started talking about it. And then he got a grant from the National Science Foundation. They sent uh, 300 test kits to, to Flint. And really, I was just working with him and, and the residents as, as, as part of this group effort to uh, go out and distribute test kits in the city. And really it was unprecedented. There had never been sort of a, a citizen-led independent uh, testing of a water supply like that had, had never occurred. So that was really a, a groundbreaking thing. And as much as anything that I'm proud of is, is you know, suggesting that we do that. I thought that was much more important than the, the other reporting that I did because then, as, and as soon as uh, Edwards and the team at Virginia Tech started getting these test kits back, they knew f with certainty that there was a problem because the lead levels uh, that they were seeing uh, were, were so high. Now, now, you were a skeptic about uh, this water switch from the beginning, uh, and, and you were reporting about the, the oversight of the emergency manager in Flint. That was what took you there in the first place? Yes, I was hired by the uh, ACLU of Michigan to uh, investigate and report on issues related to Michigan's emergency manager law, which is the most extreme receivership law of its kind in the country. And people, you know, people were going to meetings and waving jugs of, of discolored water. And, Man, it doesn't look good, but they keep saying it's good. But the, well, they didn't actually keep saying it's good. They had a series of problems. First, it was a E. coli, and then it, they started upping the amounts of uh, chlorine to kill the E. coli, and then that created uh, high levels of uh, a carcinogenic byproduct of, of uh, chlorine. And they went nine months without disclosing that to, to residents. And then when they did finally disclose it, uh, the residents were just irate. Why didn't you tell us that there was this cancer-causing chemical in, in our water? So I, I was reporting on that, and it was that reporting then when uh, Leanne Walters was given Del Toro's memo. Uh, she came to us with it because she trusted us to to get it out there and to be you know, unafraid to, to put it out there. Yeah. So that was sort of the sequence. Yeah. Uh, at, at the press conference uh, where Dr. Mona 
sort of unveils uh, all of this. Uh, you got a little, you got a little exercised about uh, what some of the officials were well, saying. Well, they continue to lie, and, <laughs> and one of the things that they continue to lie about was the role of the switch to the river. They said, "Oh, it's because the pipes are old," and you know, certainly the infrastructure. It, would not have happened were the infrastructure not what it is, but it also happened because they switched to the river, which they went from a low corrosive source of water, Lake Huron, to the river, which is a very high corrosive source because uh, it has a very high salt content, among, among other things. And then they did not, because they did not have the equipment necessary to apply the corrosion control chemicals that the law required them to apply. So, but because they made that decision to switch to the river, because they made a decision to go ahead after the guy running the water plant said, if you start using this plant, it's over my objections because we're not ready to do it. Uh, because they had done all these things that were wrong, and then they were in uh, CYA mode and trying to uh, take attention away from what they had done wrong and, and start blaming the the river, or the uh, infrastructure, rather than their actions of not using properly treated uh, water, and and so, yeah, yeah. So that yeah, that's not true. I mean, what you, you're saying you, is not true. You, you said that at the press yeah. conference. You say you guys are lying, right? Yeah, I've been familiar with your work for a long time, and and for people who are not, Kurt is a dogged reporter. But one of the things that always comes across is how deeply you care about the things that you're writing about and reporting on. Uh, and in some journalistic contexts, people say, well, that's, that's across the line. Like, you need to be dispassionate about these things. You need to be the, the fact gatherer and the fact reporter and leave the emotion uh, to everyone else. Your, your approach, for as long as I've known you, uh, has been a little different. Well, when I was working for a newspaper, I was working for an alternative paper. Right. And, and you know, the rules are a little <laughs> They're looser. a little different there, too, right? Yes. Uh, and, but that was why I enjoyed being in the alternative press. I remember the first uh, alternative newspaper I worked at was in uh, Sacramento, California. And prior to that, I had worked at uh, small daily newspapers and taken journalism in, in uh, college. And the the idea of objectivity is just drilled into you. And when I went to work for this alternative paper, my editor there said, I don't expect you to be objective. I honestly, I don't even believe it's really possible to be objective. What I want you to be is fair. And that was, that was like a light going off and the world opening up. It's like, oh my gosh. And, and was really energized by that. But you know, traditional journalism is, well, this side says this, and this side says this, and come to your conclusion. And in the alternative world, it's like this side says this, and this side says this, but this side, it's full of shit. And, and, <laughs> and this is why they're full of shit. And because sometimes objectivity gets in the way of the truth. You know, it, it doesn't happen as much now, but you know, certainly during the 90s and the early 2000s as the climate change issue was really, really starting to come to the fore, journalists would often give equal weight to the, the science and the, and the deniers as if they were equally valid. And that's not serving anybody. 
as you were knocking on these doors in uh, August of, yes. of 2015, this is really before a lot of attention had sort of focused on the fact that, okay, here's what happened and here's why it's happening. But I wonder what the people you encountered were thinking and feeling at that time. Were they, uh, were they really aware of what was going on with the water and were they afraid? Well, they were aware that uh, the water didn't look good, taste good, or smell good. Uh, a lot of people were complaining of things like their hair falling out in clumps or getting these rashes that they'd go to a dermatologist and they, they couldn't really explain or uh, cure. And, and, so that they, and it all started happening after the switch to the river. So they, they knew something was wrong, they just didn't necessarily know for sure what was wrong, but they knew that the, a lot of you know, their animals were getting sick and, and things like that. So, so they definitely knew there was a problem. And, and for the most part, they were um, very enthusiastic about having an independent entities look at their water and tell them for sure what was in it. So it was not hard finding people to um, participate yeah. in that. In that sense, this sort of participation, the citizen participation in what you were doing is is another kind of developing frontier, I guess, in journalism, right? You hear a lot about citizen journalism right now and the idea that people are often just as equipped to help tell stories about what's going on in their lives as, as journalists are. Uh, talk about how they responded to that idea of, okay, well, I'm a journalist, but I'm going to test the water and we're going to find out what's really going on before I even uh, uh, report on it. Yeah, and and the one thing that's very important, it's not me, it was we. And the citizens were the driving force. And I think that that's part of this story that is the most inspiring part of the story, but also the most overlooked part of the story. Is that, it, you know, the citizens uh, were fighting it before I got there. They had formed a coalition. And a lot of people uh, that I think were never in the same room together uh, were brought together by this. And I don't like the word crisis. I, I think the word disaster is, is more appropriate. Crisis gives the idea that something is, is kind of short term. This, this was a disaster. This was like you know, Katrina coming through. This, this was truly, truly a, a disaster for the city of Flint. And so they had formed this coalition. They tried to uh, go to court to get a, an injunction, stop using the water. Uh, it got rejected. But they were pushing, pushing, pushing. They had created uh, a website and, and were all working together. Uh, you know, they were very savvy in terms of what they were doing and, and trying to get the information out. And they were the ones that were largely the ones that, like, figured out, okay, we're going to do these tests. Edwards is sending these 300 test kits uh, from Virginia Tech. What are we going to do? Well, here's what we'll do. We'll, we'll, we'll hold, uh, like, town hall meetings, and we'll get people, and then when they come in, and they, they created... Um, how we're going to explain to people how we're doing the test, why we're doing the test, what we're looking for. Uh, they, were, they were absolutely. And, and so I was participating and I was giving input because the, the one thing that I knew was that we had to be bulletproof in terms of what we were doing because we knew that they were going to come after us and, and attack us. And so, like at one point, we had 200 kits distributed. And I, 
and so at my urging, we, we sat down, and, and they were very, very, very organized. They had index cards with all the information, uh, people's contact information, the addresses where we had gotten the samples from. And we got those, and we got a map, and we just started putting pins in the map, showing where we had collected. And it's like, okay, we're light over here, we're light over here, but we, but we gotta go hit these people. We gotta make sure that these are very well distributed because if we don't, one of the things that they're gonna accuse us of doing is cherry picking, which is what they were doing in terms of the official tests. They were, they were cheating on those tests. In um, probably June of uh, 15, the uh, Michigan Department of Environmental Quality sent a uh, email to the Flint saying, we've been looking at the test results and uh, they're coming in pretty high. Uh, you better hope out of the, the rest of the tests that you do that none of them come in over the action level or else you're gonna not be in compliance. And the next 30 tests that they did, all of them uh, came in well under the action level because they chose sites that they knew that they were gonna get low results. And then they were using those low results to give the false assurance that the water was safe. Uh, so that's what they are doing. But in order to, like I said, we, I just, I knew, like we had to be bulletproof. And so we chose parts of the, of the city to go to. Um, Leon Walters, her husband had uh, been in the military police. And in, uh, you know, at her urging, we were treating this like chain of custody evidence, uh, you know, taping it up and then writing uh, what address it came from so we could know if anyone tried to, to tamper with it. Uh, you know, all these things. But uh, again, it was very much a, a collaborative effort. And I just saw it as, we want to find out what the truth is. When, when Before we did this, I talked to my bosses. I said, look, I think we're going to find high levels. But whatever it is, you know, we need to have a press conference and and say what these results are. Because if it ends up coming in lower than we anticipated and the water really is safe, we need to tell people that because they're not trusting this. They're not trusting the government. And if we say it, you know, that, that will help uh, assure them. And, you know, we talk about it's a tricky line to walk if you say you're a journalist working for an advocacy organization. But the, the key thing for me was maintaining the mindset of a journalist. And part of that is, you know, when I worked for Alternatives Papers, you know, a lot of the driving force for what stories I would choose to cover was like where I was coming from. But as a journalist, once you do that, once you get into a story, then you have to let the cards fall where the cards fall. Otherwise, you don't have any credibility. And without credibility, you're, you're worthless. And, and that was always at the forefront. As newsrooms across the country close their doors, independent and unbiased journalism is more crucial than ever. We rely on you just like you rely on us. This spring fundraiser, join us in protecting public media. Your support keeps us thriving. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap donate in our mobile app. Of, of my thinking. Yeah. Um, so, of course, you interacted uh, not only with the citizens of Flint uh, a lot in this story, but also with officials, local officials, state officials, federal officials uh, uh, from the EPA. Let's start at the beginning when they were in the still in this really uh, hardened denial mode. What was your sense 
even then of what the motivation was to 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 question what was you know ultimately science right um, th there was real evidence that something was wrong and they continued to say well that's not true what what was motivating that well so on on one level it it was just straight economics if they were not in compliance with the federal lead and copper rule uh, requirements then they would have had to start replacing lead service lines. And it costs about $5,000 a, a pop for each one of those lines. Uh, Flint was under emergency management because they were on the verge of being insolvent. Uh, the last thing they needed was to start having to incur the cost of uh, replacing the roughly 20,000 lead service lines in Flint. So that, that was part of it. But I think a bigger part of it was the emergency manager law because the emergency manager law takes away the power of all duly elected officials. Uh, and the power lay solely in this one appointed bureaucrat. Uh, there was a series of these appointed bureaucrats, but it, it, each one had really near dictatorial power. It was the emergency manager who unilaterally made the decision to switch to the Flint River in order to save uh, what they figured would be about $5 million over a two-year period while a new pipeline was being built from uh, Lake Huron. But it, the, the lot sort of takes away a kind of check and balance. Under, under normal circumstances, you would have the city of Flint, an independent entity, conducting the tests, and then you would have the Department of Environmental Quality providing oversight. That was taken away. And so what you had was everybody was essentially on the same team. They were all, in a way, appointees of the governor or, or working for appointees of the governor. So you have the emergency manager who is an appointee of the governor. You have the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality run by an appointee of the governor. You have the Department of Health and Human Services where the Legionnaires issue uh, was a factor and did not get disclosed for two years. And when people within the department are saying, geez, this, this problem's coming up after the switch to the river, I wonder if something has to do with that, the alarm bell was never sounded about the, the Legionnaires problem. And because of that, I think uh, people were being bis misdiagnosed. They were being diagnosed with pneumonia rather than Legionnaires disease because the Department of Health was not sounding the alarm about a Legionnaires outbreak. And so the, the fact that there was no checks and balances, that everybody was on the, the same team, I think was absolutely a factor. And, you know, it's not just my opinion. The governor's own task force appointed afterward came to the conclusion that the emergency manager law was a key factor in this water disaster. And, and this is, I believe, truly outrageous. To this day, that law remains unchanged. And, and that's, that's reprehensible. I mean, when it it's universally acknowledged that this law led to a disaster that caused the poison of a city's water supply and multiple deaths. To not do anything about it is unconscionable. You know, eight cities were taken over under the emergency manager law. And it's debatable the effects 
at the other cities. It's not debatable what happened in Flint. So if you're NASA and you shoot up eight rockets and seven of them get off the launch pad just fine and one of them blows up, you don't say, look at, look at these seven rockets, what a good job they did. No, you look at the one that blew up and you say, what the hell went wrong and what do we do to make sure it never happens again? This, to this day, the state has not done what is necessary to make sure that this doesn't ever happen again as a result of this law. And that's truly unconscionable. Yeah. Um, so, Kurt, as, as things go on uh, and the state starts to acknowledge, okay, well, this is, uh, this is a problem and we, we better do something, it, it's still never, well, I don't want to say never, but it, it's a long time before they turn the corner and actually do the things that probably needed to be done from the beginning. I mean, there, there still is this, this foot drag, I guess, that, that uh, unfolds. Uh, talk about that, that time period and, and, again, why officials were not faster to say this is a disaster and we got to act more swiftly. Well, ultimately, the uh, decision maker was the governor, and the governor was a prime proponent of this emergency manager law that led to the disaster. So he is, I guess, understandably reluctant to uh, admit that this law that he was a champion of led to this uh, disaster. So, you know, first they're denying there's a problem. Then there's denying that it's the result of the switch to the, the river. Um, you know, we published Del Toro's memo in, I think, July 5th of uh, 2015. Right then, everybody should have known that this was a problem, and alarm bells should have been going off everywhere. They didn't, they, they denied. Uh, we started, uh, we did our own independent uh, test starting in early August. As soon as uh, Mark Edwards started uh, getting those, once they looked at 24 samples, uh, statistically they knew that there's no way that the city was in compliance with the, the lead and copper rule. And they started, they created a website and started putting that information on the website. I was writing articles about it, uh, you know, by mid-August. And they were calling people. You, you, you talk to the people that, uh, you know, the, the undergrads and grad students that, that were part of this team, and they talk about, like, how traumatic it was for them to be making these phone calls. We, we examined your water. You know, the, the federal limit is 15 parts per billion, which is way too high. Lead is a very, very powerful neurotoxin. Zero levels of lead are safe. Uh, Mona Hanna-Tisha will, will say, like even at, at like four parts per billion, you will start to see kids lose IQ points. And so... 15 parts per billion is, is, is way too high, but they were finding parts per billion in, in the hundreds. Uh, and so, you know, it was very traumatic for them to have to call these families and say, stop drinking your water because your kids are being uh, poisoned by it. You're all being uh, poisoned by it. So, it, you know, it just, they kept fighting every way, and then every step of the way, they attempted to discredit the truth tellers. I talked about how they tried to discredit uh, Del Toro. Uh, Mark, uh, the Department of Environmental Quality, Brad Werfel, uh, sent an email to a reporter when Edward started to uh, put the information up on their website. He says, you know, 
uh, Edwards and his team, they have this, uh, this history of uh, you know, pulling the lead rabbit out of the hat wherever they go. Like there's something in it for them to be reporting <laughs> yeah. what the actual levels of lead were. And then uh, for uh, Mona, and Mona was, was really pivotal in, in, in this way, which is we were very conclusively showing that the lead levels were way above uh, what was legally uh, limited to. Uh, what Mona did was when she went and looked at the records uh, for blood lead levels in children, and it was really brilliant. She did a nine-month period before the river, nine-month period after the river, and looked both within uh, Flint and other areas of Genesee County, uh, which did not have to use the river water. They stayed on uh, the Detroit system. And when she found that uh, there, after the switch to the river, there was a statistically significant increase in the number of kids with elevated levels of lead in their blood, that was, that was a game changer in, in a way. Because it's one thing to tell people you got lead in your water. It's another thing to tell people there's lead in your kid. Hmm. And, and that, that just carries an emotional weight. But then what was the action of the state? Oh, she spliced and diced her data. You know, that's the equivalent of, of accusing a, a journalist of, of uh, plagiarism or, or fabricating sources to say that a scientist would deliberately manipulate their data to come to an untrue outcome. You, can, you cannot say a worse thing about a, a scientist. And, and then it was... The, the, the free press that got the state's database and said, hey, guess what, state? Your own data confirms what Atisha was saying. Right. And, and at that point, it was kind of game over. Uh, they, could, they couldn't deny it anymore. But then they still, uh, and that was probably September of, of 15. Um, they still tried to blame it on the river. And it was not until... I think November of 15 that uh, Governor Snyder relented and allowed Flint to switch back to uh, the Detroit system. And then uh, Karen Weaver was elected mayor. She declared a state of emergency. And that's, and that's really when everything blew apart. That's when I started getting calls from France and <laughs> Australia. You know, it became a worldwide story yeah. at, at that point. But there were months and months that, uh, and Snyder says, oh, he didn't find out about it until uh, like the end of September. How could you not know? How could you not know? Once Deltor's memo was out there, how could anybody really not say that they weren't aware that there was a problem? So, so if, uh, if we sort of move the clock forward uh, to now, um, give your assessment of how we fixed, how well, I guess, we fixed what went wrong there and, and, and whether the state ever lived up to, you know, what the, the, the sort of, basic expectations might be of government in this, uh, in this situation? Well, all the, all the testing now is showing that the lead levels have been brought way down. Uh, I'm seeing around four parts per billion. Uh, so, so that's been addressed, but there was just an issue that was just reported uh, the other day that uh, 
Flint had not tested the requisite number of, of homes uh, required under the lead and copper rule to you know, say with certainty that they are in compliance with the law. Uh, so, so that's still an issue. Um, but Flint has other problems uh, besides lead in the water. It's, and you, you are much more of an expert on, on this part of it than, than I am, but Flint was a city of 200,000 people at its peak. Now it's fewer than 100,000. But it also had all these uh, auto plants that are now gone. But you have a huge water delivery system that is still in place, and it's not separated the industrial from the, the residential. And so you have a situation where water is sitting for weeks in uh, the, the water mains mm -hmm. before it's making into people's homes. And while it's sitting there, the chlorine is dissipating, which then allows uh, bacterial contamination to, to take hold. And so that problem uh, still exists. The other problem, when I first started going up there, there was two problems people were talking about. One was the, the quality of, of the water. The other was the cost of the water. You know, Flint is in the heart of the, the Great Lakes, has 20% of the world's fresh service water. And their water rates are among the highest, if not the highest in America. Uh, because the population loss, the industrial loss is so great. And Flint, about 40% of the people living there are below the poverty line. Uh, so they don't have an, enough wealth there to maintain their water infrastructure. And that's not a, a problem that only Flint has. That's, that's why the, there's all these shutoffs going on in, in Detroit. It's the same, the same situation in, in Detroit. The, 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 the population has decreased so much. The industrial tax base has decreased so much. The money is just not there to adequately maintain the system, so they keep jacking up the rates, which then makes it harder and harder and harder for people to afford their water. Yeah. Okay, Kurt, thanks very much for being here with us. <laughs> <laughs> On the next episode of Created Equal, we'll hear from the historian who talks about how structural disinvestment in cities led to the Flint water crisis. Cities have borne the weight of America's long history of, of racial and economic inequality, race and class kind of reinforcing each other in the way that we allocate resources, in the way that we shape public policies, and the way that people live their everyday lives, economically, socially, and politically. Created Equal is a production of WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Our executive producer is Joan Cherry Isabella. Our producers are Elena Fruget, Jake Neer, and Anna Marie Seisling. Our sound engineers are Matt Trevethan, Rowan Niamisto, and Rasan Cherry. Senior editor and musical composer is Sam Bobian. Our digital and social media team is Maida Stangi, Shiraz Ahmed, and Tony Brown. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson.